Good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Before we begin our lesson, just want to make one exciting announcement, positive announcement. At Lehman recently, there have been a lot of people placing membership and people obeying the gospel, and that's always a great thing. We love to have people come, and we hate to see people leave unless it's for a good cause and a good reason. And um, recently, Dennis Hogan informed the elders that he has accepted the preaching job for the church in Horse Cave and that he's going to be going there to work. He's been splitting time between here and the church in Calhoun before, but now he's going to be there on a more permanent basis. And so it's always great news to see the kingdom of God grow and flourish and to see people surrender their time, efforts and gifts to serve in that capacity. And we bid Dennis Godspeed. Peggy will still be here and going with him on occasion. But we're thankful for his efforts and talents here in leading, singing and teaching, but also the good work he's going to do with the church there at Horse Cave. You know, recently there have been some fathers in the news. T. Morant is one of the more recent ones, LeVar Ball. But you could add to that list Fred Sanders and even Tiger Woods. What they all have in common is that they have children who play professional sports. And for whatever reason, these individuals are more known for being outspoken fathers concerning their children's efforts. Some people on occasion accuse some of them of living vicariously through their children's efforts and success and that maybe they're more visible and more seen than other individuals who have children in that same venue. And you might imagine how this could be a struggle for any parent to see your child succeed, to see them go as high as they can go and to be withdrawn and not want some of the fame, some of the limelight for all of the training you did, all of the influencing you did, all of the advice and all of the efforts poured into the child. And so when we see this sort of thing, it really doesn't surprise us, but it does make what we read in the gospel accounts about the earthly father of Jesus named Joseph all the more remarkable and special. You open up your Bible to the gospel of Matthew and you read about Joseph being the earthly father of Jesus. And you think about the parents that would raise the greatest human being that would ever live. As Neil mentioned this morning, he's king of kings and lord of lords. And when you think about Jesus's earthly parents, nine out of ten times our minds automatically, they go to Mary. And for good reason. There have been songs written about Mary. There are statues in her honor. There have been memorials painted to depict her face and what people think she looks like. There are churches named after Mary and even people in their zeal who believe they can pray to and through Mary. Mary's received her just due and more so and for good reason for the things that she's done. But what about Joseph? Joseph is a good and godly man, but you might appreciate and understand why he's more toward the back of the line as far as efforts and praise toward him. The Gospels go above and beyond to stress the fact that Jesus's heavenly father was his ultimate authority and the one from whom he ultimately came. And so we could see how an individual could read the Gospels and just sort of relegate Joseph to a sideline character who's unworthy of mention. But we'd be mistaken if we did. He's mentioned directly in Matthew and in Luke. He's just parenthetically mentioned in Mark and in John. But what the Gospels tell us about Joseph is important. It tells us about the kind of man that he was and how he also serves as a model for each and every one of us. His name is synonymous with excellence. You struggle to read from Genesis through Revelation and read about anybody named Joseph who wasn't a good man. Think about Joseph, the patriarch in Genesis 37 through 50, 13 chapters and relatively no sin from Joseph. There's Joseph of Arimathea in the Gospels who aligns himself with Jesus and is a part of the burial of Jesus. 
There's Joseph, also called Barsabbas, who was placed right next to Matthias and was going to be selected potentially to replace Judas as the next apostle. Barnabas is a great man, but his real name is actually Joseph. And then there's Joseph, Jesus's father, and he's in that same line, same group of men who are excellent individuals and who are worthy of our emulation. Joseph has something to say to us and something to teach us. He is the earthly father to God, but he serves in his life as a model to us. Tonight, what I want us to do is open up your Bible to Matthew chapter one. And if you can see Matthew chapter one, 18 through 25, which Jack just read for us a moment ago, you have an outline of tonight's lesson. I want us to notice the things that the gospel writers tell us about Joseph and then draw some lessons as we work through this on how Joseph serves as a model for each and every one of us. Let's begin. Number one. Joseph was a holy and righteous man. Matthew chapter one, one through 17 gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And in those first 17 verses, what we see is Matthew letting us know that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Hebrew scriptures, just like the Old Testament said that he would be. And then when you get to verse 18, it says now the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way or the old King James on this wise. This is how Jesus was brought into the world. But when you read the rest of Matthew chapter one, you don't read about a lengthy discussion about Jesus's transition into the world. Instead, what we find ourselves reading is the discussion about how heaven let Joseph know about how those things were going to take place. And notice what the text says in verse 19. Mary was found with child and the man that was her husband named Joseph. He saw these things and the text says that he was minded to put her away secretly. This happened before they came together. And Joseph is also described in verse 19 as a just or a righteous man. What we learn about Joseph from the very beginning is that Joseph is both holy and righteous. Notice the text. It says before they were come together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Engagement in the ancient world was taken extremely serious. I mean, they were nearly married, but not quite. And because they weren't, he had no right to sexual intimacy with Mary. And so he refrained in keeping with Hebrews 13 and verse four that says marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Joseph practiced amazing discretion. He withheld himself from doing what maybe other people would have thought was no problem at all. He knew that this would have been a stain on his character and a sin against God. First Corinthians six and verse 18, Paul says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is outside of the body. But the one that commits fornication sins against his own body. Or first Corinthians seven and verse two, Paul says, let every man have his own wife so that you might avoid fornication. Joseph and Mary are close, but he doesn't have ground yet. And he refrains. But there's more. Look at verse twenty five. Even after they're come together, it says that he didn't know her until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Why would Joseph do that? Joseph does that for the sake of his integrity. Yes. But by this point, they're married. So you've got to be asking yourself why refrain. Joseph refrains in verse 25 for this reason. He ensures and practices self-control that Jesus is not only conceived of a virgin, but born of one. In keeping with Isaiah 7 and verse 14, his self-control allows prophecy to ultimately be fulfilled. And it's because he's a holy and righteous man. In 2009, at the height of his career with the Florida Gators, Tim Tebow, at the media day in 2009, the SEC media day, he was asked rather abruptly by the media in keeping with his religious convictions. Tim, are you saving yourself for marriage? Tim said, well, since you asked me that, as a matter of fact, I am. And there was a collective chuckle in the media room and the media struggled to gather themselves to ask him another question. And Tim said in response, I can't believe it. I finally stunned the media and silenced you all. He says, I don't think you all were ready for that question, but I was. And you see, Joseph is a holy and righteous man and he was ready to. 
His life was that which was marked by purity. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 7? God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Holiness in the end, according to Scripture, is not so much about what we do with our hands, but about what takes place in our hearts. Matthew 5 and verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. What does Jesus or what does God say to Samuel about selecting the next king in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7? Don't look on his outward appearance. Man looks on the outward, but God looks in the heart. Holiness is not about refraining from what most of the people practice. Holiness is about pursuing the things that will ultimately make God proud. And that's the kind of man Joseph is. Before they were come together. Why didn't they come together? Because Joseph knew the old law. He knew Leviticus 18, 6 through 23. And he took Leviticus 11, 44 seriously. Be holy just like God is holy. And so he refrained. But notice verse 19. The text also says that Joseph was righteous or just. That statement, he was a just man or a righteous man, is said about several people before Jesus is born. It's said about the parents of John the Baptist. In Luke 1 and verse 6, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous, walking before the Lord and fearing him. It's said about Simeon in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25 that he was a righteous and a devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's the kind of person he was, and it's said here about Joseph. When the text says Joseph was a righteous and good man, it doesn't mean that he was sinlessly perfect. It just means that Joseph was the kind of man that was doing the very best that he could to walk in line with the law of God and do exactly what God wanted him to do. It meant that Joseph found himself doing what was right, not because other people were watching, but because he ultimately wanted to please God. Listen, as Joseph lived his life, he wasn't auditioning to be the earthly father of the Messiah. Joseph was just living right because it was the right thing to do. It's what's said about Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 9. Noah was a good and righteous man, upright in his generation. It's what God encouraged Abraham to do in Genesis 17 and verse one. I'm the Lord God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And that's what you find with Joseph. He's a righteous man doing the right thing because he ultimately wants to please God. Steve Jobs gave a talk once at the Worldwide Developer Conference in 1997. Here's what he said. People think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on. But that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to 100 other ideas that there are. You have to pick carefully. I'm actually as proud of the things talking about Apple that we haven't done as I am about the things that we have done. Innovation is saying no to a thousand things. Joseph knew how to say no. Joseph said no to immorality so he could say yes to purity. Joseph said no to unrighteousness so that he could say yes to righteousness. Proverbs 22:11. Proverbs 21 and verse 21 talks about righteousness leading to favor, honor and godliness. And that's Joseph. Say no to whoever you have to say no to so that you can say yes to God. It's what the first Joseph we read about does in Genesis 39 and verse nine. You remember when Potiphar's wife tries to engage him and he says, I can't do this great wickedness and sin against God. Why? Because he wanted to live the right kind of way. And Joseph serves as a model for all of us to do the very same thing. What does Peter say in first Peter 1:15 to Christians? But as he who has called you is holy. So be holy in all of your conduct. Joseph's the father to God, but he's a model for us in his holiness and righteousness. Here's number two. He's compassionate and empathetic. Now, you and I have the whole New Testament and we open up our Bibles to Luke chapter one, 26 through 35. And we know that Gabriel has told Mary that she's going to bear a son again from this morning. Neil mentions Luke 1, 34 and 35, where there's going to be this birth and he, she'll give birth to the son of God most high. 
And Mary knows that. In fact, the text says in Luke 156, she goes up to Elizabeth's house, her cousin. And for three months, she's there. Joseph's got no clue. Imagine his shock when she comes back and she's pregnant. She has to be showing at this point and he has no clue what's going on. There's a strange ritual in Numbers chapter 5, 11 through 31, where a spouse that was suspicious that his wife might have committed adultery could go through to prove and see whether or not this was the case. And maybe Joseph had thoughts of doing that. All we know is that Joseph has no clue about what Gabriel has said to Mary. And yet here she is pregnant. And notice what the text says in verse 19. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. Why was Joseph willing to do that? Remember, Joseph doesn't know what we know. He thinks that she's guilty of sin, but still worthy of sympathy. He was minded to put her away secretly. He didn't want to embarrass Mary. He had every right, according to the Old Testament law in Leviticus 20 and verse 10 and Deuteronomy 22, 12 through 21. He had every right to bring her out before the congregation of Israel and have her stoned for adultery or for breaking the marriage vows. Somebody says they're not married yet. They're real close. Look at verse 19. The text actually calls Joseph her husband, though the deal's not sealed. In ancient Israel, the betrothal or depending on your translation, the espousal was as binding as marriage itself. And so he could have her stone. But notice what Joseph wants to do. Joseph says, I'm minded to put her away secretly, not willing to make a public example of her. Why does Joseph do that? He does it because he's both compassionate and he's empathetic. We got to ask ourselves when we notice this about Joseph, what kind of people are we? Are we the kind of people that other individuals feel comfortable confessing their sins to? Are we the kind of people that if somebody really blows it, they feel comfortable coming to us and letting us know that they've done so? Notice, Joseph is not the kind of person that cheers on sin. He just doesn't believe in crushing the sinner. Joseph does not believe that Mary should be stoned and embarrassed, though he's at this point considering not going forth with the marriage because Joseph is compassionate and caring about other people. And we need to be the very same way. What does Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26? The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle to all, able to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. If perhaps God might grant them repentance to acknowledge the truth, to deal gently with people that miss the mark and that blow it and not embarrass them. Got a friend. He was a deacon with us in Florida. His name's John McShane. He's moved to another part of Florida now for as long as I can remember. John was in the service. He's about 70 years old. But from childhood and even now, John McShane's been a dumpster diver for a long time. He likes to jump into these various places and go places and find old computer parts and things either not used or gently used and then trade them in and oftentimes make a profit. I'm not interested in that. I've got no desire to do that. But John's a dumpster diver and he's made great profit Doing it on occasion. But spiritually speaking, may none of us be dumpster divers. People that have thrown their junk, their sin, their embarrassment in the dump are not asking us to bring it up again for our own profit and for our own good. We've got to be the kind of people that, like Joseph, try to put away people's sin as quietly and as humbly as we can. He's walking in the pattern of the Savior who would eventually spend the entirety of his earthly ministry forgiving people's sins in private one on one. Why does Jesus wait for the entire crowd to go away to say to the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8, 10 and 11? 
Where are those that accuse you? Neither do I go and sin no more. When he talks to the woman at the well in Samaria, you notice he doesn't do it around all of the apostles. John 4, 16 through 29. They're one on one as he discusses her past and her history, even on the cross. It's a one on one conversation between Jesus and the thief as he reminds him that your sins are forgiven. And today you'll be with me in paradise. If you conjure up all of the adjectives and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John that describe the kind of person that Jesus was, there will be one word that rises to the surface in usage and in context above all the others. And it is that Jesus was compassionate over and over again. The gospel writers tell us that his heart was compassionate towards sinners and Jesus did not delight in seeing people at their worst. It just wasn't something that gave him a thrill to catch people in sin and catch them doing wrong. Matthew 9 36 says he looked out on the crowds with compassion. Mark 1 and verse 41, they brought him a leper and he had compassion. When he saw the woman who had buried her son at Nain in Luke 7 and verse 13 and compassion, his heart goes out. He forgives and he heals. And the kind of man we see Joseph being is a kind of man that's both compassionate and empathetic. So far as he knows, Mary is guilty of adultery. She's broken the engagement vows. But what Joseph will not do is bring himself to embarrass Mary because that's not the kind of person that he is. And as he serves as a model for us, we should be asking ourselves, have we mastered this same principle and quality? Are we the kind of people that have learned to discuss our faults between us and our brother alone? Matthew 18 and verse 15. Do we want to shout and scream the mistakes of others or do we want to go to them in the same tone we want other people to go to us? Are we the kind of people like Priscilla and Aquila that if you are mistaken, we're valiant for truth, but we would much rather take you aside, Acts 18, verse 24 through 26, than embarrass you out in the open. Joseph is a model for compassion and empathy because Joseph says, I really don't want to put anybody to shame. In the book Roll, Jordan, Roll, which is a biography of Marshall Keeble, there's a story told of when he was in a gospel meeting in Ridley, Tennessee in 1939. If you've read this book, you know the story. That meeting, above all others, is probably his most famous because as Keeble extended the invitation on one night, there was a man who came forward. And as Keeble leaned in to take his confession, he punched Keeble on the side of the face with brass knuckles. He stunned Keeble, but he eventually regained his balance and people ushered the man out. Everybody in the town, leaders included, begged Keeble to press charges. He wouldn't do so. Rather than take this man to court, he was trying to lead other people to Christ. The biographer says concerning Keeble that in this meeting, based on his response, he won over the community and dozens were baptized because he put away a man's sins privately. You see the kind of man Joseph was. Joseph was the kind of man that thought this person's in sin. We know Joseph has nothing to worry about. And in verse 20, the angel will come along and reassure Joseph that Mary has not violated the covenant vows. But even when Joseph thinks that she has, don't you see a window into his heart, into the kind of person that he is? As he says, I don't want to make a public shame of you and I will put you away secretly. He's modeling what God has done for every one of us. If you just watch and read the news, you'll see big corporations and big companies often sued even for trivial matters. And what they have a habit of doing, as soon as somebody wants to sue and if they know they're in the wrong, they often settle out of court. They settle out of court in order to reduce court fees, in order to reduce embarrassment and to move the legal process along and get on with business. Nobody is more interested in settling out of court with people than God. And it's not because of our embarrassment. It's not because of his embarrassment. It's because of ours. It's what Paul says to Philemon about Onesimus in Philemon 18, where he says, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge that to my account. God charges everything to our account, to his account, so he doesn't have to charge it to ours. You see, Joseph is an example 
of empathy and compassion because he doesn't want to embarrass Mary. He has the heart that says when people sin, we need to point it out, but we don't need to try to belittle them or embarrass them. He wants to put away her sin quietly, just like Jesus will eventually do with every one of us. Here's number three. Joseph is sensitive to the word of God. In Matthew chapter one and in Matthew chapter two, these are the only times we really hear heaven speaking to Joseph. And notice in verse 20, first he's told, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He's told this is a divine conception that's come about by God. Later on in Matthew chapter two, verse 12 and 13, the angel speaks to Joseph and he says, I want you to take the child down to Egypt because Herod is seeking the child in order to destroy him. And then he'll be told in Matthew chapter two and verse 19, I want you to take the child down to Israel. And finally, in verse 22 of chapter two, make sure that you get the child to Galilee and there he'll be called a Nazarene. Notice what you see over and over with Joseph is that he hears the word of God and he's sensitive to it and he obeys. God speaks and Joseph obeys. That's what you see over and over again in Matthew chapter one and Matthew chapter two. And the reason is, is because Joseph is sensitive to the message from God. When God starts speaking, Joseph is all ears and God has his full and undivided attention. And in that, he's a model for every one of us. You know, Balaam never lived up to it, but his words in Numbers 22 and verse 18 are probably the most sobering words concerning our relationship to the Bible in all of Scripture. In Numbers 22, 18, Balaam says, though Balak would give me his house full of silver and of gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord, my God, to do less or to do more. Balaam says, I want to obey. He didn't live up to it. But what a model to live by. It's Micaiah in First Kings 22 and verse 14, where Micaiah says, whatsoever the Lord says to me, that's what I'll speak. It's young Samuel in first Samuel three in verse 10, when Samuel realizes it's not Eli calling him, but God. And he says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. It's the kind of people that Jesus said about them in Matthew 11 and verse 15. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's Joseph. His heart is sensitive to the word of God. When God speaks, Joseph is listening. In verse 22, down through the rest of the chapter, we're told this was done to fulfill prophecy. And what you find is Joseph listening attentively to what God says to him in his word. And he's a model for us. We need to make sure we listen. You know, we can fall into the trap. And I know I'm speaking to the faithful of the faith on Christmas Eve. Everybody's here tonight that wants to hear the word of God, but we need to make sure our hearts are always attuned that way as Chase prayed a moment ago, because we can develop a heart that says, you know, I've heard this one before. We can develop a heart toward the word of God that says, you know, that's kind of old hat. The word of God's being preached or taught and every one of us can develop Mego. You know, Mego, M-E-G-O, my eyes glaze over. I've heard this already. I know this already. I've graduated beyond this, but we need to be sensitive to the word. What does God say in James one and verse twenty one? Lay apart our filthiness and overflowing wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. We never graduate from a need to learn and be instructed in the word of God. And we need to keep our hearts sensitive toward it where God says something and we listen and we change and we're reformed. Joseph does this again and again because he doesn't view himself as being over the word of God, but instead as one who lives under it and in submission. What's our response to the word of God? Do we have the mindset that says, you know what? I've read the Bible so often. I'm pretty content. Sometimes this happens. A person's talking about scripture and another individual says, well, I know the Bible. I've read through the Bible 15 times as if to say in those 15 readings, nothing was missed. Or maybe this happens in a Bible class discussion. Somebody says, I've been in the church all my life and I've never heard anything like that as if to suggest that everything they've heard in the church is everything that needs to be covered. And if it was important, they wouldn't have missed it. 
Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119 and verse 96. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. What does that mean? It means God's got a lot to say, and every one of us needs to sit at attention and learn from it. And listen, don't you see Joseph's heart? The Holy Spirit speaks through this angel, and Joseph is all ears. He's listening. He's attentive. And we need a sensitive heart toward the word of God. Right now on Sunday mornings. Josh Atkins and Clint Arbison are teaching the fundamentals of the faith in the auditorium. And we might have the heart posture that says the fundamentals been there, done that. But we really haven't. We need to constantly be rehearsing the fundamentals so that we can learn and grow and be the people that God wants us to be. Don't ever let yourself be lulled to sleep by scripture, but instead allow it to repeatedly stir your heart. When Brittany and I met in 2008, She lived, her parents lived, her mom lived right by the railroad tracks. They still live there. I remember the first time I was there and the train went by, how shocked I was and how unshocked she was. And then later we had children and they were there. And up until just fairly recently, whenever a train would go by, they would run to the door and want you to open the door so that they could hear and see the train go by. But you know what happens if you live near the railroad tracks over time? You get so used to hearing it, you don't hear it. I mean, you get so used to hearing and seeing the train go by that you can attune your ears in such a way that a train goes by and you didn't even know it. May the word of God never become the train that goes by and we just didn't hear it. We didn't know it because we already know it. Jeremiah 29, 18 and 19, God says, I'm sending pestilence and sword and famine against you because you didn't hear my word. I sent prophets early, but you didn't listen. We need a sensitive heart that says, God, speak because your servants are listening. We want to learn from you how to handle the word of truth, but also how to let it affect us. And that's what you find Joseph doing. Joseph's heart toward the message from God is, I need to learn everything that you have to say. We need to be people where it's regular among us that we find ourselves saying, you know what? I never saw that in the Bible before. Not because new truth drops in. The Bible doesn't change, but we do. And because that's the case, it shouldn't be out of the ordinary for us to read the Bible and be shocked every single time we read it because we approach Scripture as honest investigators and not as individuals who already assume that the Bible and its authentic truth will automatically align with my opinion. That's not honesty to approach the text as if I already know what's there. I don't need to change. I know exactly what Scripture says. Question. When's the last time you changed your mind about something in the Bible? Or a better question might be, does God have permission to change your mind about anything in this book? Have you ever said about anything in here? You know what? I thought this was right and I was mistaken and I changed my course and altered my way. Not because truth changed, but I was wrong about it. What does Peter say? Master, we've toiled all night, but nevertheless, at your word, because you're right and I'm not. Luke five and verse eight will let down the nets. Don't you see, Joseph? Whatever God says, he's sensitive to the word of God and he obeys, he listens, he does exactly what God says because he has a heart attuned. God promises the person with that heart will be blessed. He'll have good success. That's what he told Joshua in Joshua chapter one, verses eight and nine. And the same thing's true about us. May our heart posture be such that when we hear the word of God, it actually affects us. Question, how many times does God have to say something for it to matter to you? You ever study with somebody and they say, well, that's one verse. Do you got any more? How many do we need? You ever get ready to do a diva or teach a lesson and say to yourself, well, I I don't want to use those verses. I mean, do you have anything obscure? I mean, Malachi, give me Habakkuk or Zechariah. Everybody uses Matthew. Has Matthew lost his power? Have the old passages about love, faith and justice. Well, we need something deeper and more challenging. We need to be sensitive to everything that God says. Yes, launch out and go out into the deep. But everything that God says matters. And the person with the sensitive heart only needs to hear from God one time. The the person with the honest heart, if he says it one time, if you saw one verse on baptism, that would be enough. 
If you saw one verse on love or forgiveness or the unity of the church, God stacks references on top of references. But if our hearts are sensitive, like Joseph's, just one message would cause us to bow in submission. Here's number four. Joseph surrendered his will to the will of God. Now, if you mark and underline in your Bible, I want you to see what happens in Joseph's life over and over again. It starts early on in Matthew chapter one and verse 20. You see it. The angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What does Matthew 124 say? He took her as his wife. Matthew 121, you'll bring forth a son. You'll call his name Jesus. What does verse 25 say in Matthew chapter one? He brought forth the son, called his name Jesus. You go over to Matthew chapter two, underline this in verse 12. You, Joseph, are going to go down and take the child to Egypt. What does Joseph do in verse 14? He He goes down to Egypt. And then, and finally, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, he said, I want you to go back to Israel. Those that sought the child's life are dead. And what does Joseph do? He goes back to Israel. Question, did Joseph like living in Egypt? Did he ever get a chance to see the pyramids? Did he like Israel better than Egypt? We'll never know. Because in Joseph's mind, when God says move, he calls a U-Haul and puts a Remax sign out front and does exactly what God says. No matter what Joseph wants to do, he does exactly what God says. And God loves people like that. God loves people that have this philosophy toward life. If it makes sense to God, it makes sense to me, period. And that's Joseph. Joseph, go here. And he goes. Joseph, do this. And he does it. He's completely surrendered his will. He's like his forefather, Abraham, in Genesis 12, one through three, where God says, leave family, kindred, go to a land that I'll show you, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. Abraham, where are you going? Wheresoever he sends me. I don't need to know the way because he knows the way. And that's enough. It's interesting that the gospel that begins with God telling a man to go here and there and he obeys ends with God telling you and me to go into all the world. And the question that lingers at the end of Matthew's gospel is, will we do like Joseph? You see, in the beginning of Matthew, Joseph is told, go here, move there, do this. And at the end of the gospel, Jesus says, you Christians go into all the world and disciple the nations. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Have we learned the lesson from Joseph, a person who surrendered his will completely to God and does exactly what God wants him to do? He's in full submission. I will run the way of your commandments until you set me free for life. Psalm 119 and verse 32 It's what Mary says to the men at the wedding in John two and verse five. Whatever he says to you, that is Jesus. Make sure you do it. You know, Mary is often praised because she surrendered her body to God in order to bring forth Jesus. And I think that's right for good reason. When Gabriel says to Mary, you're going to bring forth the son, she says in Luke 138. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But don't miss that Joseph does the exact same thing. In the early chapters of Matthew, his life is constantly rerouted by the divine GPS and he never complains one time. What does Solomon write in Proverbs 16 and verse nine? Many are the plans of a man, but the Lord prepares his steps or directs his goings. For Joseph, that was it. He surrendered his will completely to God and did exactly what God wanted. And he serves as a model for us to do the same. You know, sometimes we talk to people. I've talked to people about becoming Christians. And one of the reasons there may be a lot, a lot of reasons. One reason why some people don't want to become Christians is because they're afraid. They're afraid that if they consider becoming a Christian, the question sometimes comes as you're in this Bible study. Well, I would consider becoming a Christian, but I'm worried about this. If I obey the gospel, is God is he going to change me? I mean, do I still get to be me? Do I still get to do things the way that I want to do? And there's a lot wrong with that question. But in the end, it's the heart of a person who's not really ready to fully surrender. 
The most rebellious act in our time may be surrendering our lives to God in a culture and a world which says the most authentic thing you can do is live for yourself. Don't you see Joseph saying to us the most authentic thing you can do is not live for yourself is live for your God. Revelation two and verse 10, be faithful until death, surrender your life in the cause of another. That's authenticity. That's realness. That's what Joseph gives us. His life is a life of surrender where he repeatedly finds himself saying, not my will, but your will be done. He gives up his life in order to serve God. And he shows us what surrendering your will to God is really all about. Joseph's not about himself. He's about giving his life over to God in full submission and obedience. Whatever God says, Joseph says, you can sign me up for that. Wherever God wants me to go, that's where I'm going. Whatever God wants me to do, I submit to his will and I do it. Joseph's life is in full surrender. What does Jesus say in Luke 9, 23? Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what we find Joseph doing, fully surrendering his will and following the will of the master. And God is asking of that from every one of us. And Christianity, no, if you become a Christian, you don't get to keep being yourself. But God says, I give you something better. God says you can follow me. And in doing so, I'll make you the best version of yourself. The you that you could never be otherwise. Paul says we're all being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Second Corinthians 318. There's nothing to fear in submitting to Jesus Christ, but we've got to be willing to give ourselves away. And if we're not ready to do that, we're not really ready to follow. We're really not ready to submit to God. If we have so much fine print in our contract and we approach him saying, what can I retain of my own will and still do yours? Don't you see Joseph surrendering everything, following wherever God tells him to go? And he's a model for us to to pick up our lives and do the very same thing. What does Hebrews 11 and verse one say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen for by it. Those individuals of old received good commendation. Hebrews 11, one and two. What was faith? Submission and obedience, not knowing everything, but knowing the one who does and that being enough for them. Here's the fifth and last thing we learn from Joseph's life. And it's this. Joseph knew he needed a savior. Joseph did a lot of great things, but probably the thing that stands out the most is that Joseph knew he needed a savior. If you're still in Matthew chapter one, notice what the text says in verse 21. Your wife, she'll bring forth a son and you'll call his name Jesus. Now, listen, in the ancient world, one of the rights of the father was the ability to name the son. But remember, we just saw Joseph's completely surrendered his life. The last thing he wants is control. The angel says, you won't be naming him. I'll be naming him and he'll be called Jesus. What does Joseph do in verse 25? When Mary brings forth the son, he knew her not. So she brought forth the son and his name was called Jesus. And Joseph knew that he needed a savior. Jesus's name is the Hebrew counterpart of Joshua and Hebrew is Yeshua. And it means Yahweh saves. And that's exactly what he names him. He names the child Jesus. And when he does so, he acknowledges that he needs a savior. Don't you see how Matthew chapter one begins? It starts with this genealogy in Matthew chapter one and verse one. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Matthew chapter one and verse 20, Joseph is also called the son of David. When it says that Jesus will save his people from their sins, save who from their sins? Who are Jesus's people? Well, just read the genealogy. They're kings. They're victors. They're heroes. They're harlots. They're failures. Those people, Gentiles and Jews, all people including people like Joseph. When Joseph names him Jesus, Joseph acknowledges what everybody else in the world must, and that is that we need a savior because nobody can call him savior without first calling themselves sinner. 
Don't you see what Joseph does? Joseph could have named him Joseph Jr. and we would have never known him as Jesus Christ. But in his humility, he says, we will call his name Jesus. And every single day the boy got up and Joseph spoke to him and communicated with him. Every time he called him Jesus in the woodshop, he was reminding himself he's more than my son. He's also my savior. Because you see, when we receive a gift, it's not just being polite or being kind. Whenever you receive a gift, you are admitting something about yourself. You can't help but do it. Here's what I mean. If on tomorrow morning my family gets me a bottle of Rogaine, a year's supply of breath mints, a membership to Planet Fitness, and a copy of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, and I receive those and say, thank you guys, I really appreciate it. What I admit in that moment is I'm going bald, I'm out of shape, my breath stinks, and I've got a bad attitude. Because you see, when you accept a gift, you're saying something about yourself. You can't help it. When you receive a gift and you say, okay, I accept this, you're admitting some things about yourself. And when you say about Jesus... He's savior. Yahweh saves. You're saying I'm in need of saving. First Timothy 1:15, Paul says, for this reason, this is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. Every time you read Jesus in the New Testament from this night forward, always remember the only reason why you read it is because Joseph was humble enough to call him such. And when Joseph names him Jesus, Joseph is saying, I really need to be saved. And he is going to be the one to do it. You will bring forth a son. You'll call his name Jesus and he'll save his people from his sins. Joseph was righteous, but he couldn't redeem himself. He wasn't sinless. He needed help. And Jesus came to do that. And we'll never be saved until we make the same honest admission. You see, when you receive the gift of Jesus Christ to the world, you're admitting some things about yourself. Don't you know Jesus is not our plus one? He's not the one that just comes along and helps us just in case we need it. We're bereft. We're wretched. We're destitute. And when we call his name Jesus, that's not just his first name and Christ is last. His first name, Jesus, means God saves. And Christ is not his last name. It's his title. He's Messiah. And we're admitting some things about ourselves when we say, I need him to save me. We're saying we can't save ourselves and praise God. God doesn't make us. He jumps in and does for us what we could never do for ourselves. You open up the gospel accounts and you have to say, why Joseph? Why would God choose him to bring forth Jesus and raise him as a young boy in the law and help him to be the man to eventually completely fulfill the law? Why Joseph? Why would Joseph be the man to raise the son of God, teach him all things divine until eventually Jesus is up teaching the lawyers and the doctors? You know, a strange thing happens with Joseph. You read about him early on in Matthew and then in Luke and then he just vanishes. And the commentators and scholars and Bible students have said all kinds of things. Maybe Joseph died in Jesus's early years. I mean, at the cross, Mary's there. Jesus gives John to be in her care, John into Mary's care. There's no Joseph. Everything we know about Joseph would suggest if the man was alive, he would have taken care of Mary. What happens to Joseph? And maybe all of those theories and hypotheses are true. Maybe Joseph died early on in Jesus's infancy. But I just think it's remarkable. He vanishes just like he came. Even his exit is instructed for us. He does his part and then just steps off the stage silent without much fanfare. It's like the old German theologian says, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. And that's Joseph. We don't know what happened to him. We won't probably sing songs about Joseph. There won't be statues in his honor or portraits painted to remind us of who he is. And as you read Matthew one and two, you just got to imagine that's just the way Joseph would like it. He would like to just do his business, do what God wants him to do, and then step off into eternity. Even his exit is instructive. As he says to us, live your life with strength and in silence. And when you stand before the one that you serve, let his applause be enough noise for you and to describe your greatness more than yourself. Joseph's father to God, 
but he's ultimately a model for us. Can you see the reunion in heaven? When Joseph gets there, he looks on the face of the boy that he raised, who is now a man, his son, but who's also a savior. The one he helped to raise would ultimately raise him. The one he took care of will take care of him forevermore. And not just him, but everybody else who does likewise. Joseph is far from just a silent character, obscure, that we can just relegate to the back of the New Testament. He's front and center. He surrendered his everything, sensitive to the word of God, holy and righteous, and he knew he needed a savior. And every one of us needs the very same thing. We're going to be letting a song to encourage us tonight. If you need to make that declaration known, just like Joseph, that Jesus is savior and you need him to save you, we'd be happy to witness that, to assist you in obeying the gospel, submitting to his lordship. If you've already done that, and you need the prayers of the church. Let us pray with you and pray for you. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.